All righty. Well, good afternoon. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here. Uh, thank you for taking some time uh, to listen and hear a little bit about what enterprises are doing and trying to become more agile and more innovative. Uh, just as a reminder, this is session ENT203, uh, becoming uh, operating as a high-frequency enterprise. What we're going to cover today is not really about going into depth about our AWS services. This is a little bit more about culture, mindset, um, a little bit about kind of how work is changing, uh, particularly in large-scale enterprise IT organizations. The way it's structured is we're going to cover a bunch of patterns and anti-patterns and share some customer stories of how different companies are reacting to becoming more agile, and I'll try to intersperse some of my uh, personal anecdotes. So my name is Joe Chung. I'm a director of enterprise strategy within AWS. We have a small team of former CIOs and CTOs who have all had the experience of driving a large digital transformation, leveraging AWS. Uh, prior to joining AWS three years ago, I spent over 22 years at Accenture where I was the managing director. But the last tour of duty that I had was I was essentially our group technology officer and chief architect for Accenture's internal IT organization. That organization had an ambition to do a digital transformation, to essentially drink our own champagne, and because um, I hate the word eating your own dog food. I have a dog, and I would never eat her, her food. And, um, and as part of that, we had an ambition to be 90% of workloads operating in the cloud. I'm happy to report that uh, my old colleagues and team have exceeded that goal of having 95% of workloads running in the cloud. But in addition to that, I realized that the way IT was being done uh, had completely changed. And so that led to the adoption of Agile and serverless. And then um, in addition to that, I used to own our BI system, so uh, data warehouses, reporting tools. Uh, so, so any of you who own those systems, I can sympathize with you. Um, and basically what happened was the business was really unhappy with how data and analytics were being done. I tried to buy my way out of the problem, you know, Tableau, ClickView, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, and realized I had to fundamentally to rethink the data pipeline and how we were managing data and made a push into adopting big data technologies and reimagining how information should be delivered to our business stakeholders so they can make data-informed decisions. So that's a little bit about my background. One of the number one things customers are interested in, and I speak with hundreds of customers, primarily CIOs and CTOs, and uh, more often CEOs, is how do I become more agile and more innovative? And I think perhaps like many of you who spent a long time in the industry, usually what you're trying to do is control change. And by controlling change, it usually ends up that change is implemented in a you know, pretty infrequent basis. And as opposed to this world that we're operating in where change is constant. And so our team has adopted this mental model of how do you help organizations become more high frequency? How do you help people deliver change and value to customers uh, on a much higher frequent basis than what was possible before? Uh, for me, I kind of got woke to this uh, back in 2010. I attended a tech conference in Silicon Valley, and uh, I remember hearing that Amazon.com uh, at, that, at that point in time was delivering a change 
uh, to their website every 11.6 seconds. And I was just like, what? How is that possible? Uh, I could barely get releases out the door once a month, let alone once a week, and certainly once a day was just in the realm of impossibility. But here are these organizations that are driving just an insane amount of change. And today, I think the latest stat is that Amazon.com is delivering a change, um, something like every one to two seconds. It's not just the anecdotal feedback that I hear. There's a study that was done by McKinsey as they sur surveyed their, their CEOs of their, their clients. And you know, all those companies that they surveyed, 90% were undergoing some type of digital transformation. Uh, another version of this stat that I had heard uh, was a slightly different in that the, of these CEOs that were being interviewed, you know, it was really a question of like, how much do you, are you worried about digital disruption, of which, again, it was like 90%. The more sobering stat is that 16% actually feel like they have the capabilities to respond to that digital transformation. It could be talent. There's a number of issues that um, I hear from customers that's holding them back. Another source, Gartner, says that 67% of business leaders believe they need to have significantly more digital capability. In fact, I was in a meeting this morning with a CEO and their leadership team, and you could tell digital is on their minds. And then finally, a report from Puppet Labs in the state of DevOps report that says enterprises that have implemented high-frequency practices deliver value 46 times more frequently than traditional low-frequency enterprises. Uh, I know some people take a little bit of issue of like, does deploying a change and changing code really a proxy for innovation? Um, I think it is one, and you know, changing HTML like a thousand times uh, doesn't count, by the way. But um, you know, I, I do think those organizations that have that capability to deploy more change uh, are able to respond to customer needs and their changes that happen on a daily basis. So we'll share a few observations of you know, what we hear from customers. And this certainly aligns to my experience in, in IT for you know, essentially over two decades. For why do people move slow? It's not like they want to move slow, right? And one of the primary reasons is the technical debt. Uh, some of the oldest organizations I've spoken to are over 200 years old. And what they've done is essentially one of the executives told me, hey, Joe, you know, that's great that you talk about all these things, but essentially what I have is an IT museum. I've got a mainframe, AS400, iSeries, AIX, client server, mobile. I've got it all. And certainly that's a big, big problem that I see with lots of organizations. They just haven't taken the step to continually modernize their estate. Certainly, it's hard to have a conversation without talking about security, risk, and compliance. I know many organizations are operating under strict uh, regulatory regimes. And then something like I'd like to talk a little bit more about is more about the mindset of a lot of organizations have been burned. Uh, I think there's a little bit of digital fatigue now starting to set in, even though the pressures are amping up. And what we see oftentimes is, you know, People like to make grand statements of intent, have a big vision. And there's certainly nothing wrong with having a big vision, whether it's going to the cloud, becoming more agile, becoming more innovative. The problem that sometimes occurs, though, is that that vision is matched with some big 
kind of execution of a project. I think it's starting to wane off where you know, there's an appetite to do three to five year transformations. I think people are kind of getting a little bit um, uh, cynical about those kinds of transformations. But how do you deliver value even faster? The problem with some of these kinds of big waterfall-like delivery of capability is it starts with an intense amount of pre-planning. I used to write you know, business requirements document that not only documented what's in, but just as importantly, what's out. I remember during performance management calibration, we would reward those people who were the customer whisperers, right? The people who could tease out requirements that were unstated. But of course, for those of you who've been around for a while, uh, that's pretty much impossible. It's, it's extremely difficult to get all the requirements out on the table in one go. And what inevitably happens, of course, is that you have to take more scope on for the project, right? And sometimes you cut scope, but perhaps more often than not, that scope just gets tucked right in because the business is not going to compromise just because you didn't ask the right question to tease out a requirement or state a use case. It has to be done. And of course, what happens is that that just increases the risk of the project. Delivery risk, technical risk, uh, QA risk in terms of quality, the list goes on and on. And then in response, I don't know if this has happened to you, this has certainly happened to me more times than I can count, you end up having to kick things out into manual processes. I remember one time I took over a team, it was an application that probably shouldn't have had a team this big, it was 120 people. And what it turned out was about 80 to 90% of those individuals were not engineers coding, what they were doing is they were running backend script updates because it was, in their minds, cheaper and easier to not implement the code into the system and instead just run a bunch of backend updates. And I'll just tell you right off the bat, really bad idea. Really, really bad idea. Uh, even some legal issues that came up because of an error in terms of a backend update. And then finally, launch heroics. No big go live, at least in my career, didn't end with a weeks long war room, 24 by seven bridge calls, for whatever reason, bad deployment, bad code, you name it, lived it all. So let's talk about some of other anti-patterns. And we'll go into each of these quickly in, in uh, some detail. So we talked a little bit about this. Big bets that languish in development for long periods of time, never really getting done. And the pattern that we're starting to see is the breaking up of work. And I know it sounds really obvious. And I talk to a lot of organizations who say, you know what, Joe, we're, we've adopted Agile and DevOps. But the problem that generally I see is that when you kind of look behind the curtains, the actual amount of work that's being done that way may be 10%, maybe at most 20% of the organization. And what ends up happening is just because they're doing a little bit of Agile, they sort of make statements that we're doing everything Agile. 
and driving that adoption to moving towards more of this small batch scope uh, delivery uh, is quite difficult. And you know, I see a lot of organizations doing more agile uh, than they do agile and DevOps. The other thing is just uh, a mindset issue. Um, in the name of protect, protection, in the name of risk management, um, there's a resistance to change the status quo. And of course, the pattern here is, is how do you organize and how do you position the technology approach and architecture where you can continuously refactor systems? Uh, not that long ago, I had an opportunity to speak to a longtime Amazonian who had since retired that was part of Jeff Bezos's key leadership team. And one of the things that he did, um, and if you've heard our story, Amazon.com and the way AWS builds services is completely microservices based. And the reason why they moved to that model is, uh, just like any organization, any time a change needed to be made, uh, they would kind of have to take down the system. And the expectation that uh, his name is Rick Dazelle set was to say, you know what, that's just not going to happen. The expectation is we have to change without disruption, and let's just figure out how to do it. And that switch in the mental model uh, caused all kinds of innovation to happen within Amazon to be able to rise up to that challenge. And we, I see a, a small percentage of organizations doing this, but unfortunately, I think uh, there's this sort of pervasive mindset. And if you've ever, again, had the pleasure of living in a change control board, I don't particularly find it the most pleasant experience of having to talk to a bunch of people why I need to deploy this change and them telling me why I can't. Um, and, and that's something that we definitely see a lot of organizations being frustrated with and wanting to evolve beyond. The other is just the way decisions are made, hippo-based decision-making, which stands for highest paid person's opinion. Right? I have wasted uh, a fair number of years of my life working on projects that probably never even should have seen the light of day. And uh, there is a strong movement for every enterprise to become data-driven. Of course, the challenge is, is how do you do that? One way that Amazon does that is we have what we call a working backwards process, where we don't launch any new product or service until we feel really good that it's going to meet a specific customer's need and address a particular problem. And we write the press release even before we write a line of code, even before we create a new product. That's not the only way, obviously, to launch new products and services, but it's a way to make sure that everyone is feeling really good about making these kinds of investments, because as we know, these investments could potentially last a long time. And of course, if you miss, then you could potentially erode customer trust. Silos within IT and the business. As part of the transformation, we see a lot of the kind of the functional-based organization that, that exists in many enterprises and the need to break that down. And of course, the pattern is to be able to cut across those uh, functions and the silos, primarily because uh, it's oftentimes more agile and you can get things out faster, but more importantly, as the many organizations have pivoted and indexed towards focusing on customer experience, you have to cut across these silos. It's just really impossible to create customer experiences. No one likes to have their internal org chart 
be presented to their customers. But essentially, that's oftentimes what happens. If you guys are familiar with Conway's law, it basically says that systems oftentimes are reflective of the organization. So if I have three finance organizations, I'm probably going to have three finance systems. Uh, I was speaking with one executive. He's like, three finance systems, that'd be awesome, because uh, they have so many versions of SAP running around in their environment. It's a big cultural change as well in moving to these, you know, what Amazon calls two pizza teams, where you have these cross-functional teams. You can call them full-stack teams, uh, business-oriented teams. And I'll tell you that um, it sounds great, but it does cause quite a bit of ripples in the organization. Large feature sets with system sprawl uh, with unknown value. I love this quote. Um, the person that I work for in AWS uh, constantly talks about this. How do you actually maximize the amount of work not done? Oftentimes, these big systems projects turn into like legislative bills with folks inserting all kinds of stuff into the scope of the work. And being able to say no uh, is oftentimes just as important as accepting that scope. Buying software and building processes that aren't nimble. Uh, I'm not saying that people shouldn't buy software. But one of the things that I actually did, because uh, I often run, run into situations where you know, an executive will say, Joe, that's great, but we don't actually have a tremendous amount of development capability. Uh, we actually buy all of our software, uh, commercially off-the-shelf software, perhaps SaaS software, and I totally get it. But one of the things that organizations can do is actually place these expectations on your vendors to say, are you building your product with microservices? Are you exposing all those services with APIs? Um, how about never going down? I've had plenty of software vendors who, in their uptime SLA, exclude the downtime that they go uh, for whatever, 18 to 24 hours over the weekend. So even just placing these expectations on the vendors uh, can help move you in that direction. Planning from the best case rather than focusing on unknown unknowns. Um, to testing for failure and embedding checks. The other way that I see this kind of manifest itself is people use procurement processes to kind of mitigate against technical risk through SLAs, through financial penalties. I don't know about you, but I've never gotten the full kind of compensation for when uh, one of my vendors had an issue, right? Uh, the financial penalty just never was able to recover from either the trust loss with my customers, the amount of time that my team spent trying to recover. Um, and so moving away from, and not to say that that, again, is, should be ignored, but it can't be the only thing. And one of the things that we're seeing with organizations, just the same way it happened with security, is to not only test to make sure that things are secure, whether using uh, red team and uh, blue team type exercises, or, uh, but to be able to do the same thing with availability and failure. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. So these are just a few. Uh, and, and of course, these slides will be available. I see a lot of people taking pictures. And, and perhaps more than anything, you know, these are things that are perhaps nothing new to you. And it's been known in the industry. But what I find sometimes is helpful for customers is to actually use 
this as a change management mechanism. Uh, just the fact that you guys are here in this room uh, to me shows that you're forward thinking and you're willing to be a change agent. So uh, please feel free to use these materials. So of these high frequency enterprises, there's kind of four things that I think set them apart that uh, is worth focusing on in terms of how they think about implementing some of these patterns that we've talked about. Uh, the first is uh, focusing on how do you actually break up the work and what does that actually mean, both in terms of organization and in terms of their technical architecture. Two, how is it that you evolve your organization and invest in your workforce? Three, focusing on automating bureaucracy and how do you drive a self-service and automated culture so that you're not having to spend a lot of time uh, kind of debating and being in meetings. I don't know about you, but I hate being in meetings. Uh, fourth, uh, this notion that things like security and availability and resilience are things that you, you can't really bolt on. These are things that you have to work into the entire software delivery lifecycle. So let's go into a little bit of how organizations are doing this and moving from low frequency to high frequency. So we'll talk about principles and benefits and um, have a customer use case to try to back each one of these up. The first is reduce the size of the deliverable. And if you use the language of microservices, shrinking that surface area, and then I would add perhaps one more thing that's not on the slide, is to make that deliverable independent. Uh, one of the things that sometimes I'll just go on my soapbox a little bit that bugs me particularly around microservices is I'll ask, uh, let, let's say a chief architect, you know, cause they'll say, hey, you know, we've got microservices, we're doing all this thing. And I said, uh, what about the database? Oh, you know, like these 20 microservices are sitting on the same database. And I'll say, well, what happens if like that database goes down? Will all 20 microservices go down? He's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But that to me is not independence because it's very difficult to drive change if you have to coordinate with 20 different stakeholders. So I would emphasize that it's not only about shrinking the deliverable, which could mean a system or a service, but it's also about independence. The second, we talked about this a little bit, is setting the expectation that this, these things will change. And there are a few factors around that. One, we know customers are never satisfied, so they're always gonna want new things. And then two, one of the sort of, I guess, it depends on how you look at it, the benefits or perhaps unfortunate reality is that technology is changing so quickly. I really wished that there was one JavaScript framework that I could just latch onto for my, for my UI. And just when I thought you know, we had invested in something, you know, my team would come up to me and say, hey, we should really look at you know, fill in the blank, React or Vue or you know, whatever the web framework du jour is. And I think what I realized out of that is just gosh, just these technologies depreciate so quickly, uh, is not better to have this mindset that these things just aren't gonna be around for that long, and then how can we position how we think about and build systems and organizations that account for that? To this point of maximizing work that's uh, not done. Some of the benefits, of course, I shared the story of uh, Amazon uh, Web Services and, and Amazon.com. I'll share a personal story not that long ago, uh, the CEO of Accenture announced to the street that he wanted to blow up our, the entire 
uh, performance management process for Accenture. The thing that most people don't know is that he didn't actually tell anybody else. Uh, so we had to react to that. And of course, he set some dates and expectations. And one of the things that we just had to do is build the system using this approach. Any other way, you run into the myth mythical man month problem. You know, you can't throw, you can only throw so many people at a monolithic architecture. And so what we ended up doing is um, breaking the thing up into microservices, particularly since the requirements weren't even written. And just over time, uh, and using AWS in the cloud, I developed the system that we rolled out constantly and is one of the very first times in my career actually where we had a system that went big, went live with you know, hundreds of thousands of users and it just, it just worked. We could make changes without worrying about disrupting other parts of the system. Uh, when we had performance issues, we could just dial up the, um, dial up the performance uh, in the cloud. So it was really amazing to have that kind of experience. The other benefit of having these reduced deliverables or these services is that if something goes wrong, you can contain the blast radius around what happens. Two, the way you think about investments can really be broken up and you don't have to make these big, gigantic budget investments uh, in these systems. So Yelp's an interesting case study and you know, sometimes you people talk about some of these uh, companies like Yelp which you know, you're thinking, like, is that really an enterprise type of company? But like any organization that is focusing on trying to deliver customer value, um, you, know, you kick the can down the road on the things that you think should be clean and architecturally segregated. And so what happened over time was that they had this, um, this repository that had a million lines of code, and it became extremely brittle. Uh, they couldn't make the changes, they couldn't scale it, and so over time, uh, they had to break it up into what ended up being 150 microservices, and this is about circa 2014, so I'm sure the data is a little bit out of date. And so why did they have to do this? This, what ended up being 10-year-old amount of tech debt just became this hairball nightmare to maintain. It was really risky to change the code. Uh, the other thing that was happening is that they had this account billing process that uh, was really hard to scale. So you know, one of the other issues I'm sure you faced um, is scaling systems in, in IT is kind of like this. You, know, you have a car, and what you want to do is you want to upgrade the radio. But in IT, what you end up doing is you upgrade the engine, the whole entire car, you have to get new tires, new brakes. The whole thing has to size up just because of one component that you need to focus on. And that's essentially what was happening here, is it was becoming very difficult to scale. They had some single-threaded processes that ended up blocking the entire uh, batch processing window. And so obviously this is something that was starting to become untenable for them. And so what they did is they, leveraging AWS, started to decouple, starting with this account billing area, and started to pull out each of these modules. Some of you might um, have heard of the, strangling, um, the mon uh, strangling monolith pattern, where you essentially start pulling out pieces of functionality. And the, the nice thing about this is that they actually uh, did this both kind of on-prem and into the cloud, and kept kind of refactoring over and over. They happened to use um, AWS Lambda and step functions, 
And then they were able to start to parallelize uh, some of these processes so that batch process that I mentioned, they can now run in parallel streams. And so the quote here is, we can flexibly pick individual tasks and move them over to Lambda and step functions. Uh, uh, step functions stays with us the whole way from monolith to serverless, helping us to quickly build more efficient and resilient systems. And I've seen this play out over and over again with uh, lots of different companies. The other area is to invest in your workforce. I think a part of it is skills. And this is just an example of just the waves and waves of change that are coming. Um, and I would probably tack on there with the new one being machine learning and AI, which I believe will be probably one of the most disruptive forces in technology and business today. But unfortunately, I think the mental state is that we, it's really hard, or the mental um, hurdle is that it's really hard to continue to train people. The biggest blocker that executives tell me to driving their transformation is talent. How do I reskill the organization? Uh, how do I find the talent? How do I attract talent? And one of the things I think you can do to for sure drive talent away is not invest in um, this journey. I heard of one anecdote of a company who was trying to move to the cloud, but more or less forced each employee to pay for their own way to uh, be cloud enabled, which uh, I'm sure is, sounds pretty ridiculous. And in my opinion, I agree. So you know, what should you focus on? Uh, the first is to start with the team that you have. I think everybody is surprised how malleable some people will be. Not everyone. You know, my experience is maybe 5% of the organization will be just highly resistant. And I guess you'll have to leverage your own mechanisms for how you deal with that. But the vast majority I find is that if you're serious about the journey, uh, they're willing to come with you. The second is how you organize. We do see a, a broad trend of people truly moving to DevOps. It's not just a, a thing anymore. Um, and that this notion that I haven't seen adopted as much, which is um, that whatever you build, you, you run. At Amazon, we did that because there's just no better way to improve the quality of code than to wake up the engineer who was responsible for deploying it. Uh, and I know that's sometimes a heavy lift for some organizations, but I think this is, this is something that will uh, continue to be a trend. And then being able to put resources closer to the customer. The other thing that Amazon did uh, over the last two decades is actually deploy engineers into the business so that they can be the closest as possible to the, the customers and be able to hear that feedback so that they could improve their respective product or service. And of course, the benefits are that you can change the mindset to have that mindset of continuous change. You can start to reduce some of the friction and some of the tech debt that comes from a lot of these handoffs. And to put your organization closer to the customer, which in my opinion is extremely valuable because once customers or companies lose their way in being dialed into the customer, to me it's a sure sign of sort of the slow death spiral. Lots of folks, I think, were organized this way. This was my old organization in that you had the business analysts, project and program managers who then handed things off to developers, who handed things off to testers, who handed things off to operators and troubleshooters, and it kind of goes on and on. And this idea that you create these small decentralized teams um, is something that 
a lot of people are really trying to process. The other thing that I'll mention is that you can do this in a technology organization, but I think the, the bigger, more powerful aspect is when it's coupled with the business. I remember a mentor of mine telling me, Joe, like, I don't understand why you're pushing so hard in trying to become so much more agile uh, because I had this stated goal of I wanted to be able to develop, deploy, into production live in a day. And he's like, listen, Joe, like, I, the business just can't give you requirements that fast. So you know, why are you pushing the org so hard? And uh, I'm sure many of us would celebrate if that's the, the problem. But I think a lot of organizations are starting to kind of marry uh, the business. And one thing that uh, sometimes shocks companies that I speak to is that within Amazon, we don't have a CIO. There's no working CIO or certainly some of that, someone of that title. And the reason is, is that our engineers are actually deployed uh, and coupled with the, the business teams. Uh, so there is no organization that owns all of that engineering talent. In fact, even our HR organization has their own dedicated software development engineers uh, deployed into that business unit. And there's no one that can kind of come back and sweep and say, hey, HR, you know, what you're doing is not important. I need to take that capacity away from you and give it to some new initiative or a project. Automating your bureaucracy to start finishing. We talked um, about some of these manual processes. Um, I don't know how prominent it was in your organization, but getting rid of those manual updates uh, was something that I had to maniacally focus on and essentially had to, in, in some cases, swap out leaders so that they got the message that it's actually better to implement the code and automate these things than continue to do manual processes. Some of the principles, uh, and it's worth spending a little bit of time here, particularly as it relates to cloud, is to replace gatekeeping with automated controls. So one of the primary challenges that I see, at least as it relates to cloud, is that cloud in large-scale organizations can look like one of two things. I take AWS, and I basically manage it like my existing data center. So I put in all my ITIL processes and ticketing, and it feels no more agile or more productive than an on-prem data center, which can be extremely frustrating. And usually what ends up happening is people end up just doing end-arounds uh, on those organizations to get what they want. On the other hand, you have, woohoo, cloud is awesome. Uh, I'm going to raid the candy store, and I'm going to have no controls, and I'm just going to let everybody take what they want. And usually one or usually both things happen. You spend way too much money. I remember having a very uncomfortable conversation across an uh, uh, executive where he was kind of yelling at me that I don't understand why you can say that AWS is cheaper, because I'm $20 million over my budget, and you cannot say statements like that. But I started to probe, and I said, well, do you have any like tagging? Can you tell who's using these resources? No. <laughs> Uh, do you have any kind of guardrails or policies running around or automated? No, right? So you have these kind of two extremes. And of course, the trick is, is how do you actually have something in the middle where you have the appropriate guardrails uh, using services like AWS Control Tower? Um, 
my old organization used Lambda to have policies that could go kind of police, looking for uh, unencrypted S3 buckets or uh, any number of other policies. So I find that mental model works in many cases with senior executives because you know, they see sort of both ends of the spectrum. And what I find is that if they're uncomfortable with that kind of model, it's really difficult for them to uh, move forward. So I highly encourage you uh, to try to do that. And then the other thing that I'll just kind of close with is uh, on that particular point is to be optimized and to dial in for the developer experience. Uh, I, I grew up on more of the, de uh, the development side of my career and doing application development. And I know how frustrating it can be when you don't get access to the tools and resources you need to be able to deliver what your customers want. Uh, but I also know and have been around long enough that you can't compromise on security. You can't compromise on regulatory uh, uh, compliance. So, but there is the possibility, and we've seen organizations do this, where you can kind of have uh, your cake and eat it too. Part of that comes from standardizing on reusable building blocks. I've seen a lot of organizations move to things like uh, containers, and we'll have a customer example around that. And this notion that whatever you do, just finish it, right? Don't kick it down the road and use these manual processes uh, to prop it up. Uh, the benefits, of course, is that you can get the speed and the control and shortening the, uh, the time from idea to implementation to being able to lean out your bureaucracy. One of the things, again, to share a little bit about what happens on the Amazon side, because one of the reasons why I joined Amazon is, you know, as an outsider, I was just completely fascinated how this crazy organization is able to deliver innovation after innovation. So when I had the opportunity to join the organization, I always wanted to sort of peel back, like, how does this crazy place work? And one of the things that uh, does make the place tick is that everything is self-service, almost you know, especially if you're kind of an executive, it almost feels a little painful because you're not used to doing everything yourself. But this notion of self-service, and the reason is um, having to coordinate and interact with people, uh, as much as that might be enjoyable, uh, can slow things down. And then how do you create an environment where the things I need from my colleagues, whether it's data, whether it's logic, or I need their services that you can completely do in a self-service manner? To peel back and go a little bit deeper into this state of DevOps report, you know, those that are automating their bureaucracy have a five times lower failure rate. Uh, they, can, they have 440 times faster uh, in commitment, or to commits to encode to deployment, 46 times more frequent deployments, and 44% more time spent on new features in code. Uh, a great book, if you haven't read it, is The Phoenix Project by Gene Kim who, uh, if, you're, uh, if you've ever gone through and uh, done your MBA, um, it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's sort of like a storytelling book uh, in the spirit of, now of course I'm blanking on the book. Um, sorry, the goal, thank you so much. The goal, it's like the goal, but for DevOps. And that's um, a great story for how you can kind of lean things out. A lot, I think the studies show that 75% of Technology budgets are oriented to uh, operations with 25% to initiatives, and most organizations are seeking ways to kind of reverse that ratio. At, um, I've heard that at Amazon, we like to try to spend 80 to 90% of our capacity on new initiatives uh, versus doing operations, and 
uh, probably the most forward-leaning organizations I've heard are around that, uh, that mark. Um, really kind of on the edge enterprises I've heard are more like 50-50 uh, in terms of that ratio. A great example of uh, a company who really embraced this, these notions uh, is Verizon. So they're in the process of moving over 1,000 workloads and you know, working with 1,000 teams and trying to move uh, things to the cloud. And as you might imagine, that creates an interesting kind of scale and level of coordination. How do you make sure that all these people uh, have access to the right resources, aren't doing anything that's compromising uh, security or compliance? You know, how do you make sure that these people are all going to do the right thing uh, with this particular kind of scale? It's everything from making sure that the configuration rules are right, uh, that they're deploying things properly and actually doing the, te um, the, the tests, and then making sure that they have the appropriate you know, kind of approvals to go to production. And so what Verizon did is they created a, a CICD pipeline, a continuous integration and continuous deployment pipeline that actually automated all of these things. So they baked in security policies that can run uh, when it was needed. It would automatically trigger the associated tests. And more importantly, it was a process that could actually scale across uh, the entire organization, which is a, a non-trivial thing to do if you've ever had to try to roll uh, these kinds of processes out um, at scale. And then finally, let's talk um, and close with talking about security. Werner Vogels, who's our CTO, is famous for saying, uh, failures are a given. Uh, everything will eventually fail over time. I think he's even joked that you know, he's going to tattoo somewhere on his body. Uh, everything will fail. And in fact, because of that statement, everything we do at AWS and in Amazon uh, is built on that assumption versus the assumption that let's pray and hope that things uh, will never fail. And so this notion of build it in and don't bolt it on. That philosophy, that ethos, is what shaped and drove how we designed our infrastructure. If you're familiar with the way that we build data centers is that we essentially cluster data centers into what we call regions. And uh, because we know data centers fail. I mean, how many of you have ever experienced a data center failure? That's a lot of failures. <laughs> I remember speaking to a CTO, and they had a hard down on their data center for 10 days in their peak buying season. And it was just a horrible, horrible thing uh, to experience. But because that happens, and we know it will happen, uh, wouldn't it be awesome to have an infrastructure where you can swing your, all of your workloads uh, with almost Im immediacy to another data center? Some of the principles, failure experiments. We'll talk a little bit more about the practice of uh, chaos engineering, of purposefully injecting failure. It's akin to the kind of red team, blue team exercises, where you have one team trying to penetrate your infrastructure, whether it's a third party, and one team defending. There's no better way to increase resiliency than to test it. Uh, and it, you certainly won't get there with promises from a vendor around unlimited liability and uh, you know, five nines of SLAs. 
to embed uh, compliance and security in the process, so the practice of DevSecOps, to making security um, everyone's job and not something that you just outsource or uh, lay, on, at, lay at the feet of the, the office of the, of the CISO. And of course, what do you get out of it? Uh, resilient and flexible systems, uh, systems that can stem natural drift, particularly around configurations, and more importantly, building a culture of security. Because what is the biggest vulnerability in any organization? People. And this mindset, I think, is you know, perhaps the plea that I would make of hoping everything's going to work out well, relying upon promises. And we all know how that's worked out, which is basically not very well. One of the things that we've been investing in uh, in AWS and in partnership with Adrian Cocroft, who, uh, as you know or may not know, came from Netflix, which kind of pioneered this notion of uh, chaos engineering. And, and chaos engineering is this discipline where you experiment and purposefully inject failures into your systems, maybe distributed, perhaps otherwise, uh, to build that confidence and withstand turbulent conditions. I remember hearing about the notion of a simian army, this bot army that goes around and takes down your infrastructure. And uh, we were joking at our leadership team meeting, is like, we don't need a simian army, we just have our data center operators. <laughs> they more or less do the same thing, pulling out cables and plugging things on accident. Um, but this notion that you test for failure from the get-go uh, I think is an extremely important practice and I would encourage folks to take a look at. And maybe it's a little bit difficult to do in a production environment. Um, that's where it really should be done, but I think even starting in a test environment would make, would be just as much progress. So here's a great example of a legacy kind of enterprise company and how they've embraced uh, some of these practices. So TravelX is a currency exchange, they operate in over 130 different co uh, companies. And they wanted to develop a new uh, money transfer service. And so for those of you who have heartburn around taking sensitive data to the cloud, there'd be no other organization that would be uh, concerned like TravelX. And so what they did in building the service is they actually uh, were quite clever. They built in a lot of automation. And the thing that I think is uh, pretty cool is they deployed all of their software into containers, but the life cycle of those containers is only 24 hours. And so they purposefully destroy and tear down their containers every day and rebuild them so that it always has the latest security policies, it always has the latest security configurations, and that if something indeed did perhaps get compromised, then the blast radius of that particular thing would be quite limited because of the way that they deployed uh, their code and their data, uh, leveraging, in this particular case, uh, containers and using uh, Amazon's uh, Elastic Container Service. Um, so, you know, to close, becoming high frequency is really about the change in mindset. It's about that change in culture to being able to be um, to have this mindset that things are going to change and let's have a mindset that we will invest in people to um, embrace that change. Uh, 
to rethink how we build our systems. And you know, more than microservices are the way, uh, more than you know, cloud is the way, I think perhaps what is more important is insisting that what the organization needs is to drive change and innovation without disruption at a high frequency. And that might lead you to microservices, that might lead you to the cloud. Um, I personally don't think um, it's as important and I like to focus on more enduring principles. Of course, we would love for you to uh, leverage AWS and the services that we provide to moving away from just asking and for lots of permission to do things to where you enable a really self-service oriented culture. Close with this uh, statement from uh, uh, Mahmoud from Verizon, who I've actually spoken to on a number of occasions. Uh, we knew the backbone of this journey would be dependent on how CloudFluent our engineers were. Uh, we wanted to build a learning program that would not only grow the cloud capabilities of our engineers, but would also create a cultural shift within our entire IT organization to be primed and ready uh, to continuously build for the future. Uh, so to close, we have lots of different resources that we can um, help you out with. Uh, in particular, uh, training and certification is an area that we've been investing in heavily, whether it's online or in person, uh, perhaps delivered through your solution architects that are supporting your particular uh, account and company. And then, you know, we also have um, resources in our, across AWS in our professional services organization, uh, in AWS support, to our partners, who, um, of which perhaps many of you are coming from, and, and certainly we love them because uh, they can do way more than we can do by ourselves in being able to kind of socialize this change. Um, I have about 10 minutes left. I'd love to take uh, any questions you have on the content. Uh, for those of you that need to go, thank you, and um, have a great uh, reInvent week. Thank you very much.